0: So over the past um, weeks, there have been a variety of different themes that we've talked about on Monday night. And a few weeks ago, the theme was um, social responsibility and bringing a meditative and spiritual perspective into the world of community and politics. And last week, we talked some about um, the psychology of Buddhism, which somebody who had been here said, well, you're mostly just talking about love wasn't really about psychology, although I'm not sure, maybe that is psychology in the deepest way. Um, And tonight uh, I'd like to talk a bit more about meditation itself, and in particular uh, some of the fruits of meditation. So as you listen, um, let yourself remember or sense or feel um, these qualities that I speak of tonight, which are called the the Factors of Enlightenment, Um, and they were taught originally in the Buddhist tradition. The story goes that there was a a man who had been a follower of the Buddha who was quite sick, a monk perhaps, and the Buddha sent his attendant Ananda to go and care for or attend to this man, Um, and... uh, don't close all those windows, please, in the back. Leave a few of them open. Um, get some air in here. Anyway, so this, uh, Ananda went to tend to this sick monk. And it, it, when he sat with him, he said, I want to remind you about meditation. And I want to tell you in words the qualities that come as one deepens in the capacity for presence in meditation. And he recited these seven qualities or factors. And um, right afterward, the man sat up and said, I'm, I'm feeling much better. Thank you. <laughs> and he was healed or whatever. Um, so um, the tradition is that they have a way of transforming consciousness, transforming the body and mind. Now, the other reason I want to talk about them tonight in a meditative way is that we live in a world that is speedy and... Troubled in many ways, as well as wonderful. Um, both the outer kinds of conflicts, the war and in various places the wars and injustice and racism that still permeate so much of human society. Um, and the kind of speed and consumerism and so forth that we are, we are swimming in much of the time in our own culture. Um, so my daughter it's my birthday. I get to talk about my kid. Um, my daughter was coming back over from Berkeley to for to visit, and she had a a, a dental appointment, and she was going to come home for a bit and visit us. She just graduated from Berkeley in in June, and um, she was on Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, um, right, uh, going past where the uh, ferry leaves at Larkspur Landing. Most of you know that place, and the cars slowed down, and then they just stopped, all the cars in front of her, a few cars in front of her, and she was just there, and the cars were kind of creeping forward and stopped, and she was trying to figure out what was happening, and then she could see, past two or three cars, that there was a duck in the median strip, (laughs) a big duck where all the kind of redwood bark is in that median strip, and with the duck were a few little ducklings, And then, you know, she saw another little duckling go by, and she realized that there were a bunch of ducklings. They were headed from the, uh, from the north side of the road back toward the water, back toward where the ferries go. So she got out of her car, she and another woman, and they went up and they made sure the traffic was stopped. And there were 11 ducklings, and only half of them hadn't got there. So she kind of waited, and they got up to the curb, and then they helped the last ones up to the median. So okay, this is fine, but then immediately the mother duck jumped off the median on the other side and wanted to continue over toward the ferry terminal, and of course the little ducklings all started to follow one after another, so she and this other woman stopped the traffic the other way, all these cars were coming, the duckling. and when they got to the other side of the road, there was a big curb, she said, it was like a foot, so the mother duck got up and all the little ducklings were gathered around, there. they had to take all 11 of them, you know, one at a time. She said, "And Dad, they have these little duck pills. They were so cute. You know, I mean. It's just, it's just, anyway, so." And she said, "It was right out of Make Way for Ducklings. Yes. If you ever read that child, that wonderful children's book that she had, had read when she was a um, a little girl." And I I tell the story um, first of all because it's such a lovely story, um, but secondly uh, because it speaks in some way to the need in the speed and, you know, busyness, and in some cases, the, and complexity, in some cases, the drivenness of modern life, for us somehow to be able to stop and listen and take care of whatever it is, the ducklings that are crossing the road, all 11 of them, um, or our own children, or our own bodies, or the garden that we've been given, or the garden of the earth in the larger sense within which we live, and to stop and pay attention with this kind of care that the story points to brings us back to a fundamental nobility and beauty and, and, and sacredness of life that is here when we quiet the mind and open the heart. Luminous is the mind, says the Buddha. Luminous Pure, clear is consciousness in its innate state. But it gets clouded and caught up in fears and confusion and attachment, and we forget who we really are. Oh, nobly born, begin the Buddhist text, remember who you really are. Remember the possibility that whatever circumstance you find yourself in, no matter how fast the cars are going and how fast life seems to be going, that in whatever circumstance you find yourself, it is possible to take a breath, to slow down for a moment inwardly, and to find a kind of stillness and care and freedom that is your Buddha nature, that is your birthright. And these qualities of enlightenment, then, are simply reminders of what that feels like, and you already know, you already are. Sitting in meditation, as we did just now, and as you may, as you do a meditation practice, those of you who follow and have a meditation practice, is a way of stopping, quite simply, and allowing these qualities, this stillness and openness and sensitivity and connectedness, all to manifest in your life. So the, the seven factors of enlightenment are in two groups. There's a kind of arousing group or a lively group of three qualities and a stabilizing group of three qualities. And then the balancing of them, and the first and kind of central factor, is the simple quality of mindfulness itself. And I like to pronounce it in a different way. I like to call it mindfulness. And mindfulness means... a A present, sometimes it could even be translated as sacred presence or respect, it is the quality that comes in any moment when we rest in the present with what's true, with a spaciousness and ease without judging or trying to change it. We can respond and take care of the world, but the first step is just to see the way things are without being caught in it. And mindfulness, says the Buddha, is all helpful to be able to see without reaction and judgment and grasping and contraction without expectations it's not even about being quiet or calm it's just noticing this is the way things are and the, the descriptions of mindfulness sometimes speak of it as the space of awareness <coughs> so the image of the sky or space is a common one Resting in the space of knowing. And then our breath and our thoughts and our feelings and the actions and the circumstances of those around us, they come and go. But the point is to actually be here and present without trying to change or fix anything first. Just to be with it as it is. To be with this world. Now, it's an amazing gift to be in this (coughs) way. And we all know this. I mean, you know what it's like to... To be in the presence of someone who gives you their full attention. Who's not expecting, or wanting, or hoping, or trying to get rid of, or trying to judge. Or, but just actually present and listening. What a, what a gift and a treasure it is to be held with that kind of attention. And in the same way, we can bring this attention to the joys and the sorrows, what are called the 10,000 joys, and the 10,000 sorrows, the vast sufferings of the world and the unspeakable beauty of the world which we will all encounter. Now, John Kabat-Zinn, who's a dear friend and wonderful teacher, who started mindfulness-based stress reduction teachings in medical school in Massachusetts It's now spread to 300 or 500 hospitals around the country and so forth, when he first opened his... His clinic in the basement of the medical school in Massachusetts. Um, He did, he put on his white coat and went up to do grand rounds with uh, the doctors of the hospital. And he said, what I would like you to know is that we're opening this clinic called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction to help with people's stress and pain and conflict and difficulty. But in particular, I want you to send me down, we're in the basement, right? I want you to send down... um, anybody you can't help (laughs) all those but send me down the hardest cases that's what he asked for and then he said to me privately "He said that's because we have the strongest medicine (laughs) (laughs) i said well what is the strongest medicine and he went on he said the strongest medicine is that capacity to be present for what's true that's the great medicine of all not trying to fix it or change it in some way but the capacity for someone to come in who's been in terrible pain and trying to fix it in all these ways or someone who's terribly frightened or the various things that happen in a medical center and where modern medicine had done everything that it could and they were still somehow in great difficulty, said, send them to me. And in the training, the central quality was the capacity that we have to be present for the difficulties and the beauty of life with an open mind and an open heart. And it's really what we train when we sit in meditation. The breath comes and goes, and it's not like you're becoming a good breather. You know, I mean, you could, but that's not the point of it, really. The breath, awareness of the breath, helps us to become present for the sadness that comes, or the, the longing, or the great love, or the creativity that arises, all these things we want to do, or the you know, amazing visions that come, or the regret that might come, all the things, or the pain in our bodies. I know when I sat with my father as he was dying, he had a considerable amount of pain and a great deal of fear, that part of what was so important, and he kept saying, please stay with me, please don't go, you know, day and night, was that I wasn't afraid, you know, that I'd sat through a lot of pain in my meditation at certain points. So when he had pain, I said, it's pain, you can do this, breathe, there's ways to work with this. You know, when he was really frightened, I said, this is just fear. And you sit, and you, you, you bow to it, as we did in the sitting, you name it fear, fear, and then you see what happens, and one of three things will happen. It will go away. Wow, I did that so cool. I named it fear and it's gone. Or it will stay the same for a while. Fear, fear, oh, it's still here. Fear, fear. I hate this. Okay, hating, hating, right? And back, fear, fear. And you just notice that, okay? Or I did it really well. Pride, pride. You You notice that comes. Or, so it will go away. It will stay the same. Or it will get worse, right? That's its business, right? Fear, fear, oh terror, terror. Oh, okay, terror, terror. I hate this too. I'm going to feel like I'm dying, dying, dying. Okay, Let's see what happens next, you know. Oh, I did pretty good with that. Okay, pride, pride. You know I mean? <laughs> and you start to begin to trust the space of awareness itself, to begin to rest in the ground of awareness, as if you can bow to experience and say, this too is part of our birthright as human beings the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows are our experience anybody not have that? and instead of fighting someone being frightened by someone running away and grasping for others and so forth to sit in meditation or to live with mindfulness is to awaken your own Buddha nature and say yes this is life and I can tolerate it and I can be open to it with compassion with an open heart with the wisdom. This is the way things are. Small things you practice with first. Itches, where you sit and you don't scratch the itch. Not because you shouldn't, it's fine to scratch, but because an interesting thing happens. Itches, it, and you really want to scratch it, and you think, I just can't stand it, I can't stand it, you know. And you hang for a while, and then you know this amazing thing happens. It goes away, you know, or it itches someplace else, right? <laughs> okay, that one's gone now. On. And you start to realize that you can become the space of awareness itself, and in doing so, there comes a sense of steadiness and trust and ease that we all know, we've all experienced this. Like Earth itself, we become stable. Now, it can even work in very difficult circumstances. So, Ruth Dennison, who is a wonderful insight meditation teacher and a colleague and a good friend, she told this story, she was taking care of her husband Henry, who died some years ago, um, and for the last five years of his life or more, he had Alzheimer's, he just couldn't remember anything. And just before she took him out to her desert house, they were living together in Los Angeles, and um, <coughs> he left the stove on and the house caught on fire, part of their house burned, and he was wandering around. and. It was really a very, very difficult time taking care of Henry and teaching. She had a retreat center that she was running back and forth and teaching these retreats with while she was tending (coughs) to her husband and all the fire and all of this. And she was supposed to teach in Oregon. She flew up to Portland where one of her students had set up a retreat for her. She was exhausted and she got in to Portland. That afternoon and that evening they were starting a retreat. And she got up to begin to teach, and she said, I'm really tired, but I've decided to come and teach this retreat. She said, but I have to tell you what's happening. And my husband, Henry, Alzheimer's, and not remembering, and the, the fire, and all these things, and it's been so difficult. And she talked about that, and then she said, now you sit, and you follow your breath, and begin to become mindful, and so forth. She said, but I have to tell you what's been happening. And she started telling the whole story over again. Henry, and the Alzheimer's, and the fire, and so forth. You know, people are kind of looking at each other <laughs> like, oh, you know, and now you sit and follow your breath, but I have to tell you what's <laughs> happening. And some people started to get up and leave, you know, like, okay, she lost it. Um, and she knew something wasn't right. Maybe it was in this this evening class or retreat. She knew something wasn't right. And she said she saw them starting to leave and go there. She said, wait, wait a minute. Just wait a second, you know. She said, don't leave yet because you have tonight... The opportunity to see something very unusual. You have the opportunity to see a senior Dharma teacher fail. Because I don't know what I just said. You know, I'm so exhausted and I don't even know what I'm doing. But I still want to be present with you. And they sat back down. Um, And it turned out she's fine now. It was really situational. It was just the stress and the lack of sleep and all of those things and and so forth. But it was kind of an amazing moment to say, all right, even in mindfulness, you can bow to this too. Here, you bow to success and you bow to failure. Oh, but I don't want failure. I only want success. (laughs) Right? Sorry. (laughs) You know, what can you do? I only want youth and I don't want old age, right? I only want sweet and not sour, or whatever it happens to be. It's not the way it's made in this incarnation. And mindfulness takes a deep breath and says, yes, this is the way things are, and sees with the eyes and the heart of a Buddha, this too. And then you can respond. Now, with this quality of mindfulness that brings us into the present and into balance, there comes three arousing factors and three stabilizing factors. I have so many stories, but I don't want to go on too, too long, so I'll do what I can to kind of keep it within bounds here. The the three arousing qualities, um, the second factor of enlightenment, is the quality of energy, aliveness, or effort. Lots of different ways that it's translated. A right effort it's called in the in the Eightfold Path. And what wise effort or right effort means or energy is simply the effort to be present. All these things one could hear about in spiritual life and spiritual practice, forget that. I mean, those are all kind of sidetracks, whatever they are. The real quality that's asked of us is the capacity to be present. And not with struggle, but rather, it's more like riding a bicycle to come back to this moment with attention to the person in front of us, to the circumstance, to our own breath and body, to the things of the world that are around us. So this from my good friend Annie Lamont. see if I can find her. Where are you? Annie? She writes, I have a tape of a Tibetan nun singing a mantra of compassion over and over for an hour, eight words over and over. And every line feels different, feels cared about, and experienced as she is singing it. You never once have the sense that she's glancing down at her watch thinking, Jesus Christ, it's only been 15 minutes. Forty-five minutes later, she is still singing each line distinctly word by word until the last word is sung. Mostly things are not that simple and pure, with attention to each syllable as life sings itself. But this kind of attention is the prize. So, energy or aliveness. You know, sometimes we're afraid. (coughs) It's like love, or or whatever it is, that we're going to run out. If I love this person, or I love that person, you know, that's like a little battery in there, then I'll use it up, right? Or if I give myself fully to something, well, then I won't have the energy to give myself to something else. But it turns out it doesn't work that way. As we give ourselves to life through our attention and our care, it opens us as a channel. And more and more, we become available for life. Thank you for calling the 1-800-MOTIVATION HOTLINE. You now have three choices. Press one if you need a personalized wake-up call. Press two if you've forgotten why you even bothered. Press three if you need a good swift kick in the pants. This was actually, somebody did set up the motivation hotline in New York nonetheless. Got a lot of calls. The word for another word for this quality of energy or aliveness that was used by the shaman Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda is the word impeccable to live with the kind of impeccability or care rather than half-heartedness to bring ourselves to the circumstance of our life it's like the sign that A friend of mine has in their therapy room that they got from Las Vegas, and it says on it, you must be present to win, right? And it's true in Las Vegas, and it's the same in meditation, basically. And the thing is that it doesn't matter if you succeed. I mean, it does matter some, and you want to succeed, but in the end, that's not given to us. Our fear is we're not going to get it right. Well, guess what? It's probably true, right? Zen Master Dogen said that a Zen master's life is one continuous mistake, or that is one opportunity to learn after another. The point isn't to do it perfectly. Nobody's ever done it perfectly according to some fanciful idea you have. Oh, if only I could do it perfectly. Who taught you that, right? The perfection, well, it says in one great Zen text, to be enlightened is to be without anxiety about non perfection to not be anxious that things aren't perfect, because they've never been perfect according to some idea. They're perfect in the way they are. They're perfectly the way they are. And then this quality of effort or energy is to be alive and present where we are. And you can begin to reflect, when are you alive in your life? Is it gardening or you know, cycling or talking to people? or taking time and walking in nature or being quiet or music what brings you alive because part of the point of, of a spiritual life is to connect yourself back to what brings you life so energy and the quality of bringing oneself into the present and learning that we can tolerate and stand the whole catastrophe so are the and and trust it. There, When I was in the Cambodian refugee camps years ago, these little tiny bamboo huts on a hot, incredibly hot, dry, old plain on the border of Thailand and Cambodia, and, you know, Sake Okawi done 50,000 or 100,000 people, big barbed wire fence about a square mile or so around this huge refugee camp, and... Um, the huts were about five feet by seven feet made of bamboo, a little roof, just enough room to sleep in, sit in, and then be a little door, and then be the hut next door made of bamboo. And each hut had, when you went out the door, a little path. There was a little square of land that wasn't right on the path that was maybe about maybe one square yard that was sort of their front yard, one yard. And in most of those little squares, within a month or two of people being in the refugee camp, they had planted a garden. And these are people who had gone through the most horrific destruction of their culture and their temples and so forth. And at the far end of the camp was this big pit well that had been dug by a bulldozer that was way, way down. And you had to wait with your buckets on a bamboo stick for an hour in line and go down and get the water and bring it back. And people whose lives had been really shattered would go to the well and wait and get water and come back, and there would be a little squash plant and a bean plant and things that they planted, Mm -hmm. and it was as if something in us knows that even out of darkness and devastation and difficulty, there's life that wants to get born again. So the quality of presence is really trusting that life again will renew itself. Mindfulness and energy to be present, to trust. And then investigation is the next quality, Dhamma vichaya, it's called, or Dharma vichaya, which means basically you show up, you bring your life with you in the present, and then you see how things are. When the mind is still, tranquil, neither grasping nor seeking after any solution, nor struggling, then it is possible to see what is true and it is the truth that liberates and not your efforts to be free this is from Krishna Murthy it is the truth that liberates and not your efforts to be free let me see we have this cartoon here from Calvin and Hobbes (laughs) Hobbes the tiger they're they're outside Calvin's building a snowman aren't you supposed to be inside doing homework now Calvin says, I quit doing homework. Homework is bad for my (laughs) self-esteem. It is? Sure, it sends the message that I don't know enough. All that emphasis on right answers makes me feel bad when I get them wrong. So instead of trying to learn, I'm just concentrating on liking myself the way I am. (laughs) Bob looks at him and says, your self-esteem is enhanced by remaining an ignoramus? (laughs) Please, we call it informationally impaired. Thank you. (laughs) Socrates said to be certain is to excuse me to be uncertain is to be uncomfortable but to be certain is to be ridiculous <laughs> I know that I know nothing and one great Zen master called this don't know mind the quality of investigation isn't so much figuring things out with a thinking mind but seeing the mystery of life that presents itself what is this mind it contains everything the mind and the world are the same thing pay attention to it what is this breath it breathes itself the breath is moving through our bodies all by itself all the time we're part of the the breath of the world it's really amazing you know and we take this mystery for granted here you are incarnate in these animal bodies, right? I like to talk about this, the hole at one end into which we stuff dead plants and animals regularly, right? And <laughs> grind them up with the bones that hang down and glug, 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 push them through the tubes, out the other way, and move it around with these wiggly things at the end and little bits of fur and, you know, I mean, how did you get in there? Really?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and do you think
0: this is who you are? I mean, who are you? you're not this animal I mean yes you are in a way you have an animal body but that's not really who you are you just get to you you rent it like you know Avis or Hertz or something like that (laughs) for a while and you're going to have to turn it back in and so when you begin to look investigation means Thich Nhat Hanh's phrase is to see deeply and when you see deeply you see the mystery of life that we've been given and then you start to sense well what matters in this possessing things and sure, it's nice to be comfortable and have a certain amount. But we all know that you can have a great deal and be tremendously unhappy. Or you can have very little and also be joyful in spirit. So it's not just the stuff. What makes a life beautiful? What makes a life happy? It's our capacity to love, our ability to be present and live fully. It's the ability to see with the heart, with the heart of a Buddha that's within you. And there's a freedom if we look in any moment, deeply. One young monk went to the Zen master and said, Zen master, um, uh, where do I find liberation? And the master said, well, whoever has put you into bondage? his question back, how do I find liberation? Well, who has put you into bondage? It's so interesting to really quiet the mind and look And just become curious. Well, what is this life? What matters? How might I be free? I mean, what is it like when you hold on to things? I mean, we all do it. Um, And what's it like when you let go of something? When you hold on, you get rope burned, basically, what happens. You hold on, and they change, right? Or, says the Buddha, how about looking deeply and seeing that things change and relaxing instead of holding on? It doesn't mean you can't love or care for things, but there's a whole other way of being, and you all know this. So to see deeply, to let wisdom arise, investigation, and with it comes joy. Joy for no reason. So you know those little kind of strange characters in that Matt Groening um, cartoon characters in Life in Hell, those little kind of, I don't know what they are, but they're what? The rabbits. Oh, thank you. I never wondered what they were. <laughs> anyway, so here's the the cartoon with the rabbit or whatever. It is sitting like a yogi in a meditative posture, right, with his cross-legged and his hands and so forth, and saying, "I am in the present. I am in the here and now. Here and now is the place to be. All that exists is this moment. The moment is eternal. All that is and will be is now." And I'm resting in the timeless. Time is an illusion. There's no place but this. This is the moment of awakening, all these little squares. With no past and future, all things are complete. And then in the second last frame, there's a little ding. That's all you see. And then the last frame, shaking his head, dang, that microwave popcorn takes a long time. <laughs> So there's a way in which we we undertake spiritual practice as if we were waiting for something. Waiting, 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 meditating, and waiting for the bell to ring, right? Or waiting, waiting, waiting waiting for something good to happen, waiting to get enlightened. Or or we do it as a kind of grim duty, okay? You're supposed to meditate and be kind and things like that. There is a certain kind of person for whom the divine gets mixed up with exercise and vitamins. (laughs) And that's not the point. There is, uh, instead, in Sanskrit, a word for this quality of joy or rapture. Um, translated into Thai, the word is jai pong sai, which means lightness of heart. And if you see the Dalai Lama, you see it. Even though he carries the weight of the people of Tibet and the tragedy of what's happened in the Chinese Communist Army's occupation of Tibet and all of these things, there's still this deep, wonderful laughter and tremendous joy and happiness that he carries in spite of that. Um, And life is not here just as a grim duty. There's a wonderful book that Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh wrote called Cultivating the Mind of Love. And usually when you read Thich Nhat Hanh's books, which I've read most of, and they're they're deep and very simple and profound. There's a kind of invitation to, to see, um, to look uh, underneath the normal ways that we live, to quiet ourselves and so forth. So this is a book on, on, on love. And he first starts talking about Maitri, or metta and the quality of loving kindness that can be developed in meditation. And I'm reading along and thinking, this is beautiful teaching, and it's nice, and la, la, la. I've read a lot of books like that, right? And then the next chapter begins this way. She was 20 years old when I met her. We were at the temple of complete awakening in the highlands of Vietnam when I fell in love. I saw her walking up the steps, returning to the temple, looking out over the nearby hills. Seeing her standing there was like a fresh breeze blowing across my face. I had seen many young nuns before, but I never had a feeling like this he was giving these lectures in his community in France and people were sitting listening to him talk about loving kindness and the practice of compassion and breathing and all these nice things and kind of dozing off and all of a sudden he started and I first saw her on the stairs you know when I fell in love and everybody who'd been falling asleep woke up oh, okay. now this is very interesting and so he weaves in this book uh, the, the Buddhist teachings on, on love with his story of falling in love with this when he was a young man with this young nun, um, quite wonderful and poignant, and uh, a, a, a really important reminder of joy. I mean, if we can't have some sense of joy, what's the use? I mean, what what's all this spiritual life for? Rumi says, "Do not sit long with sadness, my friends." When you go to a garden, do you look at thorns or flowers? (laughs) Spend more time with roses and jasmine. And this is, it's one of the factors of enlightenment because to have a free and beautiful and easy heart, and it doesn't mean one can't weep with compassion, and I've seen the Dalai Lama weep many, many times, but that's not the place where he returns to. He returns to the, the love and the beauty of life itself. And that's an invitation for all of us. And that, if you read in the Buddhist text, there are all these descriptions of, there's five grades of rapture. You know all these lists because the Buddha was a list maker <laughs> and also because that's how they were remembered when they were this oral tradition for 500 years. Five grades of rapture, each with ten different qualities, the cool rapture and thrilling rapture and happiness you know, of the luminous heart and all these wonderful poetic descriptions. I'll let you figure it out for yourself. But you know it you already understand it okay a story let me see which story when our second son Jasper was born he was labeled a child with Down's Syndrome this is as inaccurate as it could be in Jasper's case it should be called Up Syndrome when he first wakes up he rushes into his parents bedroom and leaps on us with an enthusiastic happy to you morning He meets the entire world with his heart outstretched, and he hugs everyone he can. Mm -hmm. It's his favorite way of being. (coughs) They used to call his state retarded. It makes me wonder. Mm -hmm. Other parents of similar children have warned us to curb his hugging behavior, or he will be the target of molesters. But this is Jasper's gift. How can we deny it? The other day, we were walking down the street, and he got out in front of us. He's almost 12, but he's very small. This angry-looking tough guy with tattoos and piercings comes toward us, and I go, "Uh uh-oh, but it's too late to reach Jasper. And then I see Jasper look up, smile, and throw a big hug around this guy's leg and shout, hi there. (laughs) And the tough guy paused and tousled Jasper's hair, and I could see this shy young boy's smile come over the face with all the piercings. Jasper had done his magic again. (laughs) So energy or aliveness, interest, deep listening in the mystery of life, and joy. Balanced by the qualities of concentration and calm and equanimity. In Western psychology, we know some about mindfulness and we know about paying attention. It's part of the art of Western therapy and of deep interest and so forth. But one of the great gifts in Buddhist teachings, in Buddhist psychology, is that this is complemented by a quieting and steadying of the mind and heart. And I know when I used to work individually with people and see people in, you know, counseling and therapy, I would have people come and sit for 15 minutes before we would start to talk. And it was a completely different thing. If somebody comes in off the road and they've been busy in their office and they come in, you know, and we just start launching, it would be one thing. But if you sit, just for a little while, and let the mind quiet and the breath settle down and begin to pay attention to the feelings and states and place where you are, it doesn't take that long to get back in touch with what really matters. And when we would start the session, it was as if all this stuff was cleared out and immediately would start from a deeper place. It's not very complicated. So all those alive qualities of investigation and joy are balanced by concentration and concentration simply means a steadiness of heart learning how to still and steady and direct ourselves so that when you're a potter you learn how to hold a piece of pottery when you cook instead of multitasking you're actually there cooking or computer programming or making love it doesn't really matter the quality of steadiness brings things And it also releases us from a kind of frenetic identity, from a small sense of self where we're always reactive. When you collect and steady yourself, and you find your way, some people it's walking, some people it's sitting, some people it's working with the breath. Gandhi called it blessed monotony. (laughs) You know, we're in a culture that wants to kind of um, be diverted and amused all the time. And Gandhi's word was just to... Blessed monotony was to take your time and let things settle and be with them in a steady and stable and beautiful way. And little by little, we, we can actually learn what it means to be steady. And we all know this, too. you know this, this kind of an art. Um, and there comes with this... And ease and a purity and a kind of dignity I mean I watch it when people come on retreats and the first day or two there's a lot of release of tension in the body and thoughts and after two or three days people start to get more collected and concentrated and then somebody will go out for a walk and I'll see them walk and and it's almost like you can see from the outside they're not walking and thinking about a million other things they're walking and being present and it's like a clipper ship in a you know, beautiful wind. There's just such a quality of integration of body and mind together. So that's what this concentration is. It's a kind of an integration in which the, the spirit and the body and the present moment all come together. I never look at the masses as my responsibility, said Mother Teresa. I look at the individual I can only love one person at a time. I can only feed one person at a time. Just one, one. So you begin, I begin. I picked up one person, and maybe if I didn't pick up that one person from the street, I wouldn't have picked up Mm 42,000. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean, Mm -hmm. but if I didn't put that drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Mm -hmm. The same thing for you. Same thing in your family, in your community, where you live. Just one one one. And this is the quality of concentration, of giving ourselves to each thing that we do with a kind of wholeness of body and mind, care, steadiness, and meditation kind of trains that capacity for us. Concentration and calm. My teacher Ajahn Chah called it the still forest pool. He said, When you learn to sit in meditation, All kinds of things come and go. But if you practice for a while, your mind and heart become like a still forest pool that reflects the things of the world. And all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come and drink at the pool. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Kabir, the Indian mystic poet, he says, the caller chants in a loud voice at dusk, Does he think that God is deaf? (laughs) Doesn't he know that she hears the ringing of the anklets on the feet of an insect as it
1: walks?
0: (laughs) And again, in our culture, we have in some way lost the spirit of calm. What it says in the Tao, easy come and easy go. The ability to be present for things without fighting against them without so much reactivity this is from Zhuang Tzu. he says the true men and women of old were not afraid when they stood alone in their views no great exploits no plans if they failed no sorrow no self-congratulation in success the true men and women of old slept without dreams and woke without worries their food was plain they breathed deep. They had no mind to fight the Tao. They did not try by their own contriving to help the Tao along. These are the ones that we call the true men and women. Minds free, thoughts easy, brows clear, faces serene. All that came out of them came natural, like the four seasons. And it doesn't mean that that's the only way live I and mean, there's periods of dancing and periods of excitement and we will all have that but to come back to the ground of stillness and to be able to walk in the woods and smell the bay trees and look at a redwood tree as if you hadn't seen it before and how amazing it is because it is and it's just extraordinary you know. And these golden hills and to be present for the world with its joys and sorrows. I mean, I remember in a recent retreat, a woman who was sitting and in, in a great deal of agitation because she was in so much conflict with her daughter. And her daughter had, had, had she had a, a grand grandchild as well, a grandson, and they were in struggle about where they were living and how the child was being raised and all these various things. And she came in one day. And she said, you know, I realized she'll never exactly be the daughter that I hoped for. And I'll never be exactly the mother that she hoped for. And we are just who we are. But I will not live my life anymore with bitterness or resentment for the way things are. I simply am not going to do that anymore. And it's as if a kind of calm had come into her heart um, that allowed her to forgive there had been a lot of hurt between this mother and daughter and allowed her to look with the eyes of the Buddha at her daughter and her grandson to not struggle but to come with a kind of mercy and stillness of heart. This is the way things are. When Thich Nhat Hanh first came to teach in about 25 years ago here in the Bay Area. He came to San Francisco Zen Center and gave some teachings at Tassajara that I went to. and A number of us went to, to to be with him. And Richard Baker, who was the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center at that time, described Thich Nhat Hanh um, as a combination of a cloud, a snail. Have you ever watched him walk? He's so mindful and slow. A cloud, a snail and a piece of heavy machinery. <laughs> it was a fabulous description. Because in one way, there was this, there is about him this tremendous stillness and steadiness and, uh, um, and lightness, and at the same time, it's unshakable. And it's important to understand that this calm or the stillness of mindfulness is not passivity. It's simply the absence of being reactive to things. I remember back in Thailand, in the 1970s, there was a big, um, there was a military takeover of the government and there was a, a, a kind of period of great unrest and a, a big conflict in Bangkok led by the students on the streets and there were barricades and Molotov cocktails and the army was out and a lot of people were killed and it was, a, it was, it was really pretty bad and one day when it had gotten to a point that people were really frightened of what was going to happen between all these students and the army one of the forest monasteries outside of bangkok a teacher called all his disciples together there was a couple of hundred of them and they walked on foot starting you know before the sun rose into the city a whole long line of them and then they walked very slowly, through the streets of the city, and they came to the place where the fighting was between the barricades of the students and the army, and they walked between them and they just stood there mm-hmm. for the day. Mm-hmm. They didn't go anywhere, they just stood there, peacefully, doing standing meditation. Mm-hmm. And in their doing it, everything settled down. First, with there's tremendous respect for the monastic order in Thailand, and People have a great reverence for those who dedicate their lives to peace you and know, to inner transformation in that way. And the students quieted down, and the army put down their weapons, and it was really a turning point in that revolution. So I'm not saying that calm or mindfulness means that one doesn't respond to the world, but we respond in a different way. And the last of these qualities of enlightenment There's concentration and calm, these steadying qualities, and you can feel them. What it's like when your heart is calm, when you're steadying yourself. The last is equanimity. This balance that's possible when we rest in awareness, the the balance in the eternal present. And equanimity shouldn't be confused with indifference, which is a kind of withdrawal or a fear of the world. It is instead a deep trust in the reality of the present. Because this is what we have, this present moment and nothing else. The past is a memory. The future is a fantasy. The only place we can love is in the present. In the past, it's a memory. In the future, it's just, you know, your imagination. The only place you can love is here. The only place you can be alive is in the present. And equanimity allows us to rest in the present with trust and ease and balance. When Zen Master Suzuki Roshi was asked to sum up all of the teachings of Buddhism um, in very simple ways, he put it in three words. He said, not always so. Things will be changing. Absolutely true, not always so. And when you can relax in the midst of change, when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, mm-hmm. Suzuki Roshi says, there you find yourself in nirvana. I remember going to visit Ram Dass after he had his big stroke seven or eight years ago. And it, he was really on the verge of dying when he was in the ICU, went to you know, the hospital a couple of times in those first days and the doctors gave him a five or ten percent chance of living because the stroke was so massive. Um, and then he got through all of that and he went into a rehabilitation hospital for a year or more. And I went over and visited him and I brought him, he couldn't speak yet, I brought him a picture of Ramana Maharshi, this wonderful Indian sage who didn't speak with words. Mostly, he just looked at people with what's called a glance of mercy, with so much love and almost no words, that it changed people just to be looked at with that kind of love. Their lives changed. And when Ramana was was near dying, he was dying of cancer, and his disciples said, don't leave us, don't leave us. He looked at them with this quizzical expression. He said, but where could I go? (laughs) Wherever could I go? I'm always here. This is where we are here in the present always so i brought ramdas a picture of ramana maharshi because i thought ramdas wasn't really able to speak at that point very well just a few words i thought well maybe i said to him maybe your teaching will be like ramana now it will be silent and we had this lovely exchange and so forth and i visited him of course o- over that year and then he finally got back home and when he was back home one day I, I went to see him and he started to get his language back and he said, Jack, I wanted to thank thank you and it was so slow to find words for that beautiful picture of Ramana Maharshi that you brought me in the hospital. It took him a long time to say all this. Um, and he said, Here, And he gave me a picture of his guru, named Karoli Baba. Wonderful picture, he said. And then he smiled. He said, it's it's like, baseball cards, <laughs> I'll give you one Neem Karoli Baba and a Mickey Mantle for Ramana Maharshi and Babe Ruth, <laughs> and at that moment, I knew Ramdas was fine, I was <laughs> like, okay, he might not be able to speak, he might not be able to move his body, but underneath was this great spacious spirit that said yes this is the way life is sometimes you can speak and sometimes you can't speak sometimes you're young and sometimes you're old sometimes there's joy and sometimes there's grief and it's all part of the game of life itself William Butler Yeats writes we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our stillness. So these are the qualities of enlightenment, mindfulness, of aliveness and interest, of joy in the midst of all things, the happiness for no reason, the qualities of calm and concentration, of steadiness and of great balance. And we have them in us. We know them, O nobly born. You, who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, know that this is possible. You've experienced this. And meditation is the invitation to come back to this beauty in your own heart and to live it and bring it into the world. So let's sit for a moment. remember that even if there's a lot of traffic when the ducklings are crossing the road you can stop help them across it'll make your day into the summer evening a very short chant. Um, In India, when you meet someone, the custom is to put your hands together and bow and say namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see the spirit that's there behind all your costumes and so forth. I see who you really are. What a lovely way to greet someone. And the root of the word namaste in Sanskrit, or Pali language, is the word namo, which means to bow to or pay respects. It's the first word in a lot of the Buddhist texts. And I'd like us to simply chant the word namo nine times before we go out. And as you do, you can feel what it is that you wish to bow to in yourself, in those around you, in the things of the world that you love or are grateful. Or, or the things that are difficult that want your respect? Nah. live in the reality of the present wakeful at ease gracious heart remember your true nature and have a good week thank you